Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and on this week's Archive Edition, we find ourselves back in the home and in conversation with folk singing legend Shirley Collins. This is her story, how she went from collecting voices to finding, losing and eventually discovering her own again. I just love the songs because of what they tell you, what they sing about and they sing about absolutely every subject in the world, mostly love, quite a lot of death, a lot of partings and sorrows. Back in January 2017, we took the opportunity to speak to Shirley Collins about Lodestar, her first record release in 40 years and the then upcoming performance at the venue. I travelled to Lewis to the small house where she lives and recorded this album. Our conversation began with her first encounter with music. Well, it first entered my life when I was a child growing up in Hastings during the war. And my grand and granddad used to sing to my sister Dolly and me when we were in the air raid shelter during the war. Because wow. um, Hastings had quite a few bombing raids and uh, doodlebug raids as well. So, yes, I mean, I had that sort of grounding from the very start. And, you know, they were semi-rural um, workers. Granddad was a gardener on an estate in Sussex. And, um, you know, yes, I did have that, that music right there from the beginning. <laughs> and we survived the bombs as well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose that's interesting because you, you're seeing music in that context of something that could be powerful and sort of reassuring and cathartic. Mm. And, and that's probably stayed with you. Well, I do find, you know, that there's this, this power there and... and the comfort that I remember still from listening to them sing. And Granny would often sing as nursery rhymes, you know, which instills in you this wonderful sense of the rhythm of English speech, the beauty of the tunes. You know, they're not nonsense. They're, they're mm. lovely and they sort of give you this wonderful sense of Englishness, which even nowadays I still sort of like. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the journey then from nursery rhymes to, to, to folk music. I always loved the sound of the songs that I heard as a child. And at the time, in the late 40s, early 50s, we listened to the radio all the time. There's no television, of course. And we had, although we had a wind-up gramophone, we only had two two records that we could listen to. One was The Laughing Policeman. But on the radio, there were programmes like Country Magazine. When the BBC started putting out people to collect, you know, what was left of traditional song in the countryside, then they'd play some of those recordings. Mm. So they reminded me again of Grandad, you know, and I just just loved it. I lapped it up. I learned a lot of these songs from the, from the radio programmes. Dolly and I used to go down to downtown Hastings on Saturdays, go to the library in the morning, have our lunch at Lyons Corner House, you know, and then we go to the pictures in the afternoon. And in those days, of course, there were two films shown always, an A movie and a B movie. 
by luck, uh, we chanced upon a B-movie called Nightclub Girl, which was the story of a girl from the Tennessee mountains who was discovered by a New York talent scout as she sat singing her folk songs, and he whizzed her off to New York. Then she started appearing singing in nightclubs wearing lovely frocks, and she was fallen in love with by the um, the talent scout as well, who was an actor I really liked as well. So I thought, oh, that'll do for me. I'm going to be a folk singer. <laughs> I was 15 years old. This all sounds so ludicrous now, but I wrote to the BBC to say I want to be a folk singer. They passed the letter to Bob Copper, um, the very famous Sussex writer about the countryside and, and history. And they, and then one day in Hastings when I was 15, um, there was a knock on the door and there was Bob Copper. He was in Hastings um, collecting songs from the fishermen in the old town. Wow. And he'd, he'd got the letter, been handed the letter and came up to see if there was anything doing up at, at our house in Athelstan Road. Um, but then my sister and I, we sang him a couple of songs that we'd learned from the radio. And one of them was a Scottish ballad, which we tried to sing with Scots accents, you know. And so it wasn't what Bob was looking for at all. But he spoke to Mum and, and recorded a couple of, of country dance tunes from her. And he went in to see Granny and Granddad next door. The, the great thing was that he'd got teenage children of his own. So he knew, you know, what nonsense we could all be capable of. Um, and then... A few years ago, just before he died, because I, I kept up a friendship with him right throughout my life, and uh, he, he handed me his worksheet for that particular day, and there it was. It said, Shirley Collins, Occupation Schoolgirl. <laughs> I know. I know. Way down in yonder valley, pretty Polly did dwell. She was courted by a captain who loved her so well. But when her cruel parents came this war to know They parted pretty Polly and her own true love One night she lay musing on her bed And a sudden strange fancy come to Polly's head No father, no mother shall make me fall I list for a soldier and follow my love. And coat and breeches she put on, and in every degree she looked like a man. She went to the stable, six horses she found, and saddled a mare could travel the ground. Dolly and I used to sing um, together the songs we you know, learned from Aunt Grace or from Grandad and uh, some that, again, we'd learned from the, the radio. And my mum was an ardent socialist or even a communist. I mean, she was a member of the Communist Party for a while. But both parties had socials at a big hotel called Oakwood in outside, just outside Hastings and we'd go along, Dolly, me, and sing at these socials. And it was there I met a man called John Hasted, who sort of said, you know, you ought to come to London and, you know, you've got the chance to find more songs there because there's a wonderful library at the English Folk Dance and Song Society at Cecil Sharp House. And he said there are other young people singing as well. I, when I was 18, 19, I did go to London. I moved to London because I knew I had to find, you know, this stuff. And so that was the start of it all. But it was always folk song that was, you know, pulling me. It was, it was the only stuff I liked. 
And we hadn't been able as children to listen to American pop music on the radio because mum thought it would corrupt, corrupt us, yes. <laughs> and so after three or four years in London, I was invited to a party that Ewan McCall was throwing for Alan Lomax, the American um, collector of, of folk song, who was coming back to London after spending five years in Spain and Italy recording traditional song. I, so I, I was introduced to him, and I, I have to say I fell in love on the spot because, I mean, I was going to anyway because of the music, you know. Um, but then there was this tall Texan with great big shoulders and a head of very shaggy dark hair, and um, he reminded me of an American bison, which was my favourite animal anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I was a goner, really. <laughs> what was your experiences like in the, in the States, um, meeting these people, entering their lives mm. and, and, then re- and then recording them? Well, after a couple of years, Alan went back and then a year later asked me if I would like to join him in this recording trip, a field recording trip he was planning in Deep South. And, of course, I went. Um, I I went by boat. I went on the liner because that was the way that you travelled if you weren't very rich. But this was just such an eye-opener for me. Um, but meeting these people was... The poverty I saw there was was quite extraordinary. But alongside that poverty, there was an incredible generosity, which I loved, and sort of such welcoming people, you know. I mean, not all of them, of course, you know, there were some frightening moments there. What was lovely as well is that I was able to sing back to them version, English versions of some of the songs that they were singing that had come from the old country. Now, most of their ancestors had come from the old country, as they called it, and they were thrilled. You know, they, they liked that connection. It sort of brought me very close to them often. When we were in places like Mississippi and, and Alabama, I sort of deeply ashamed of, of, of having to eat in segregated restaurants, for instance. You know, it was just before the cusp, or on the cusp of the civil rights movement. Segregated restaurants, segregated swimming pools, you know, segregated everything, really, which we used. But I felt ashamed of myself for having to. And outside a great many towns in the Deep South were the KKK signs, the Ku Klux Klan, announcing, you know, that it was legitimately there. Extraordinary, you know, and that was terrifying. But there's one absolutely lovely story comes out of that trip, that visit, is that um, James Carter was one of the convicts that Alan recorded leading a work song, Paul Lazarus. And many years later, the Cohen brothers used it in the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which, you know, the actual recording, which is so marvellous because by this time, many years later, James had been released from the penitentiary and uh, the Lomax people traced him to Chicago. And the album of the music from the film had just soared in the hit parade, you know, and sold millions of copies. And they took James to the Emmy Awards and gave him his first royalty check for $20,000. Wow. Isn't that marvellous? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you lo- just love that thought of justice taking a time, but, yeah, yeah. you know, eventually happening. 
boat sea captain lived by the seaside oh, and he's courted a farmer's daughter and got her with child Go fetch some of your mother's gold, likewise your father's money, and you shall come along with me, and I'll make you my honey. So she stole some of her mother's gold, likewise her father's money, and she did go along with him to the banks of Green have to skip a little bit more forward. Could you talk just a little bit about the, the 60s and 70s, a, a very creative time for you, working with lots of different people? After I got back from America in 1960, then I started to go around the clubs, you know, to pick up where I'd left off. And of course, in the year that I'd been away, there was so much more going on. And it was a sort of slow start, but it quickly built the whole thing. And um, I was able to eventually record with people like David Graham, you know, genius guitarist who doesn't I think get the full credit other people copied him and they get the credit but it was Davey who you know was the original genius really so I made an album with Davey and although I mean that was I I wasn't sure how that one would work because he played quite a lot of jazz and I just can't stand jazz it makes me so fidgety I just (laughs) got really cut and it makes me angry as well I just don't like it at all But but I heard him play an Irish song when he came out to the house to see if we could possibly work together, and it was just incredible. He he just made it sound, although he was playing it as sort of as an Indian raga, it mm. sounded even more Irish than you know than than it might. So that was a wonderful thing. I had played five string banjo and a guitar, and I was sort of rather limited. I I wasn't much of a, a musician. And then it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, Dolly, who was a trained composer, and so, she, you know, we joined forces and, and made, well, Sweet Primroses was the first one with the, this flute organ that we had discovered because we both loved early music and we used to go to early music um, centre in London and listen to rehearsals of people like Michael Morrow and the music of Reservata and David Munro, you know, who was just about to form his early music consort. I've been, I've just had lots of luck in the people I've met. You know, it just is extraordinary, really, and I, I've been so fortunate. And then we, we, went, yes, we there was so much happening. We, I mean, when I look on, on those albums, because you, you didn't have long time to record them in those days. You know, you expected to do it in two days in the studio, which is going at some, especially for anthems in Eden, because it was, you know, the uh, David Monroe early music consort, you know, all those musicians as well, and Dolly's, all of Dolly's arrangements written out for them. It's a miracle. <laughs> I mean, I can hear the flaws in it, you know, just because you had to, you had to move along to the next one. And, yeah, a couple of other albums that time as well. Lots of club work, you know, it was, it was busy. And I'd, by that time, got two young children as well. So I used to sort of make sure they were OK and the babysitter arrived or my mum had arrived and then rush along Blackheath Park to catch the train. I was always running to catch trains, it seemed to me. <laughs> The lady was walking down by the seaside A poor drowned sailor she chanced there to spy When first she saw the sailor 
It put her to a stand For she knew t'was her lover By the mark on his hand But I don't know how difficult this is to talk about. Can we then move on to the crisis of, of, of your voice? And... Yes. Well, I, after John and I divorced... Um, which is quite an amicable one. I mean, he'd found somebody else, and um, I was quite happy about that. I married Ashley Hutchings um, when he was still with Fairport or Steel Eye at the time, and um, Steel Eye's band. And we we got married, and we li- moved down to Sussex and lived in Etchingham in a beautiful Tudor cottage um, called Red Rose. And we were sort of there happily for seven years. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But then um, the theatre sort of took hold of our lives and um, we were up in their, in their Cottesloe in the, in the National doing Lark Rise. It, just a couple of days after an anniversary, um, Ashley and I were walking down the lane hand in hand um, then he had to go to London the next day for a couple of meetings. Came home that evening, walked through the door, and I looked at his face and said, Ashley, what's wrong? He said, I'm consumed with love, and I'm leaving. <laughs> just, you know, poof. And what, I mean, I was, I was just was so shocked and so bewildered and so heartbroken, really. And um, and that was the sort of beginning of, of the end of my singing. I, I was Because when I was then working at the National, um, still with the band, because I thought I'd earned my place there, you know, I deserved to be there. So I, I, I soldiered on there, but it was a promenade performance and the actress he'd fallen in love with would turn up night after night in the audience and she'd stand in front of me wearing his sweaters, you oh, know. Geez. And I some nights my voice, you know, my throat was constricted. Sometimes I was trying not to cry, so everything was just hard. And I was being criticised for my <laughs> bad singing and I thought, God, you know, what am I supposed to do? Anyway, I, I tried and tried and tried, but finally it um, it did me in and I couldn't. I didn't dare sing, you know, and I, mm. even at home I didn't dare open my mouth because I didn't like what came out and that extended into 
centuries. <laughs> you know, a bit feeble. I wish I'd responded with anger rather than grief, but you don't know how you're going to react. And, you know, I certainly had no sort of advance notice of this. But in a way, I still couldn't forgive myself because the songs are all about this anyway. You know, they go into the deep emotions that people feel. And um, so, you know, it's it's not as if I was feeble or anything. I, I tried and tried but I've got two children to bring up, so I had to find other work to do. And I had, you know, you just have to, you know, you just have to keep going. And not long after this fair maid died, right on my tomb the lady cried, here lies a A series of friends and uh, fans and, and, and other people cajoled you, gently encouraged you to, to perhaps to try to sing again. Yes, I mean, I got a lot of encouragement from friends, some of whom got a bit impatient with me as well because I kept saying I can't sing, you know, and this went on for so many years. And finally, it was, it was David Tibet um, who phoned up over 20 years ago when I was still living in Brighton and said, look, I'm a great fan of your music. I love what you do. Could I come and see you? Well, I wasn't singing at the time. I think I was working at the job centre or something. And it, it was sort of starts out of a great friendship. And he started asking me if I'd sing again. He tried to you know, convince me that I could sing. Over the years, I did, in fact, record a couple of verses for a couple of his albums, um, which, but I wasn't happy with them. And he kept us saying, look, I've got a gig in February or whenever. You know, Would you just come and sing one song in it? And I'd just say, no, I can't do it. And another five years would pass, and then he'd ask again, and I'd say, no, Tibet, I, sorry, I can't. Well, maybe. And then another five years ago, and I'd say yes. And then when it came to the gig, I just couldn't do it. And then the 20th year, um, he's a very patient man. <laughs> I said yes and did it at the Union Chapel in London with Ian Keary accompanying me. I was nervous and it was scary, but the audience was so warm um, and seemed to remember who I was, which was lovely because I thought I'd been entirely forgotten. And so, you know, that led to this ultimately, to the album, you know, to Lodestar and the concerts we're doing following it yeah i'm lucky enough to be in your in your house and and this is where you recorded it in this very room we did all the recordings um and i mean as you can see it's not very big and at one point we had um we had alex nielsen with his drum kit he was just required to play some snare drums mm. and some light stuff but he said no i've got to bring my whole drum kit in i i can't i can't play drums without the whole kit there you know even if i'm only playing a couple of things and so it took up half the room it was just great and we had a morris dancing here as well dancing <laughs> and you Ceiling's not very high, as you know yourself. <laughs> and and Glenn doing Morris dancing and his great capers and leaps. You know, he just, because he's quite tall as well, he just missed that beam um, several times. But it was relaxed, you know, we mm. had fun. I could take things slowly as I wanted to and do things as often and many times as I needed to. And there was the most marvellous bit of serendipity, the day that we recorded Cruel Lincoln, which is in a song of, of bloodshed and vengeance. And 
It was a midsummer's day and, and all the windows were open. And when we listened to the playback of the recording, it's just full of bird song. Mm. So there's a great bank at the back here, you know, trees and um, and all the birds were singing. And we listened to this and we said, we've just we've got to keep this on, you know, because what it did was point up the sort of beauty of everyday life yeah. against the horror of the story. You know, it's just sheer, sheer good luck there. Sang the nurse shall be burned in the fire close by. Cruel Lincoln shall be hanged on the gallows so high. Was it hard to, to choose from, you must have a bank of music in your head, quite extraordinary, you know. Was it hard to choose what to, what to sing? There is... I mean, there's still so many songs I, you know, because I continued to learn songs even though I wasn't singing, you know, because um, it's what I love. And uh, so I had I had scores, if not hundreds of songs to still do. But in a way, these songs just presented themselves. I knew that I wanted to sing Awake, Awake, Sweet England because it had been fascinating me for years and years. This amazing journey it took from London in 1560 or whatever when there was an earthquake that toppled St Paul's Cathedral or part of the old tower and there was a religious zealot um, who wrote this ballad, you know, warning people that they better start behaving themselves because God was displeased and the earthquake was one of the first signs of it, you know. And then it disappeared, this song. Um, I'd never heard it. I hadn't heard of it being collected anywhere. Of all the field recordings I've listened to, and that runs into many hundreds, the song never appeared mm. And then in 1907, Vaughan Williams collected it, noted it down from Mrs Bridges in Herefordshire. How did it get there? You know, what was its journey? Yeah. I've always been fascinated by this song, and it's a wonderful song as well, because I like I, just the sort of thing I really do like. Awake, awake, sweet England, sweet England, now awake, and to your And so I knew I wanted to sing that one particularly. And then things just sort of lead on, you know. We, we Then Ossian, once he'd heard Awake, Awake, Sweet England, Ossian Brown wanted, of he's from Cyclope, you know, with, with Steve Thrower. He said, could I write a hurdy-gurdy piece to follow this? And he did, you know, he came up with the most almost alarming piece of hurdy-gurdy playing, which I loved. And um, and the, But the fascinating thing about this doomy song, you know, that threatens destruction for everybody, by the time it had reached Caroline Bridges, it had morphed the last verse into a May carol. After all, it just says, you know, um, our song is done, we must be gone, no longer can we stay. You know, God bless you all, both great and small, we wish you a joyful May. Mm. And it's so odd that it comes out at the end of the, the other three dark verses, you know. And so then I thought, yeah, we've got to have a May carol in that case to follow this. And so um got the May carol words and I wrote a tune for it. And then I thought, yeah, if it's May carol, we've got to have some Morris dancing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that sequence followed quite naturally. Mm. But the rest of the songs were songs that I'd had on my mind a long time anyway and uh, always loved. Un jour je me promène Tout le long de mon jardin Tout le long de mon jardin Sur le beau de l'île Tout le long de 
mon jette sur le bord de l'eau, sur le bord de la vaisselle. And a big question, but for you personally, how do you define folk music? From from what we've been talking about, I, I get the distinct impression it's storytelling plus melody, perhaps. I just love the the songs because of what they tell you, what they sing about, and they sing about absolutely every subject in the world, mostly love, quite a lot of death, a lot of partings and sorrows. There's even a couple of songs, you know, all sorts of suicides, murders, and the most remarkable one in many ways is a couple of songs that deal about cannibalism in the British Navy. <laughs> so everything can be that can be sung about is sung about, but... Beautifully. I mean, I love the words, and they're not always utterly perfect, or which is, you know, part of their charm. You've got sort of the reality of, of what ordinary people are remembering as well, and mm. passing it on. The stuff they learn by heart, so it's going to change as each person sings it too. Um, and then the melodies of English folk song. The, I mean, there's some very cheerful and beautiful songs, but it's the lovely melancholy behind so many of the melodies that so appeals to me. Although I'm not a melancholy person at all, it's just that um, it just, you know, reaches me. I do believe old Johnny Buckle was a gay old buckle and an old Mrs. Buckle too. Was there a certain amount of, of, of adjustment as you sort of discovered, I suppose, a new voice? It's still your old voice, but very much changed, I suppose, by time. Well, I've always sung with my own voice. You know, it's the same as my speaking voice. I don't try to change it when I sing because um, I don't think that's the way you sing a traditional song. You know, you you have to do it honestly and straightforwardly and, and how you are. Over the years, my voice has dropped quite considerably. You know, it's, it's lower um, and it's a bit fragile, really. Mm. Um, but it was my friend Pip who persuaded me that I'd, could sing that I was now of an age and with a voice like most of the field recordings that I loved, which were made from old, you know, older voices. And he said, don't be so vain, you know, you're one of them now. I thought, yes. And it was just sort of liberty, you know. I thought, yes, I'm one of them now. And um, and so that's, you know, that gave me a bit more courage to sing as well. So, you know, first time you sung on such a big scale for a very long time. I mean, what have you got planned? I've got lots of support for a start. I mean, I want to do, you know, this is the first show for 38, 40 years. You know, it's a long time. And I just want to give people the best evening I can. So we've got wonderful images, projections from Nicky Abrahams, the filmmaker, with some of Rob Curry's film. We've got marvellous images from... The Lewis Bonfire Night, you know, absolutely pagan stuff, and um, it just suits that first song so well. We've got Morris Dances. Now, I love Morris Dancing, and I won't hear a word against it. Um, you know, I think people are miserable who don't like it. Because <laughs> when it's done well, of course, you know, you good and bad. Obviously, there are quite a few bad, limp Morris sides. But so we've got Brighton Morris, who are the most virile, manly side and I can still appreciate that even though I'm 80 years old and um, we've got Boss Morris as well a women's side new women's side from really rather challenging I think as well a bit anarchic and they're they're bringing you know they've got wonderful costumes as well and they bring animal heads with them you know so there's that sort of legendary thing as well going on and beautiful I mean you know huge things so there's going to be Morris dancing 
outside, I trust, during the afternoon and early evening. So that I just wanted to be a bit of a spectacle as well and just sort of bring everything into this concert that I love. But then, of course, we've got guests in the first half. I've got um, lovely Graham Coxon from Blur. He likes my music. <laughs> and we've become friends. Um, him and his wife, Essie, they just turn up at things. And it's so lovely. And he wants to, you know, he just loves singing this stuff. So he's coming, which is a great thrill. Yes. Yeah, so apart from um, Graham Coxon, we've got Alice Dale Roberts, great Scottish singer, one of my favourites, wonderful, wonderful singer. John Kirkpatrick, a real hero of mine, um, who's an absolute champion of English music. Wonderful squeeze box player, tall man who just strides on the stage and there and that's it and he's given you England uh, you know in 10 minutes uh, so that's lovely and then we've got um, Lisa Knapp as well beautiful yeah. singer you know and um, and I want to have a woman as well you know yeah. uh, which I because I'd like to encourage everybody so all in all I think it's going to be a, a good evening My thanks to Shirley for speaking to me and making me so welcome in her home. As you'll have heard, it was an incredibly moving story. Shirley Collins performed in the Barbican Hall on the 18th of February 2017 in front of an enraptured audience alongside the guests, visuals and the Morris dancers she mentioned. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds such as this and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 